Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. I'm Shane Rosenthal. If you've been listening for some time, you know that one of the features of this show is that it offers a little more production value than the average podcast, which of course takes time to produce, particularly in my case, since I'm not only the founder and host of The Humble Skeptic, but also the writer, editor, segment producer, MP3 encoder, marketing manager, social media and event coordinator, etc., etc. I'm a one-man band, which gives me the freedom to create the kinds of shows I want to create, but until I get more help, it also means that I've generally got a lot on my plate. Well, for the next couple of months, I'll be spending most of my time on a book project related to many of the issues I've been discussing over the past year on this podcast. And to make this happen, I need to take some time off from my normal production routine. The good news is that I've recorded many interviews over the past few years that I'd love to share with my new audience, and I'll be doing this each week, beginning with this episode. So joining me for this program is Dr. Michael J. Kruger, who is the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, where he also serves as the professor of New Testament and early Christianity. Dr. Kruger is the author of many books, including The Question of Canon, Canon Revisited, and more recently, The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity, which is the book I spoke with him about during this conversation. So before we dive into today's discussion of progressive Christianity, you've written quite a lot about topics related to the history of early Christianity and the development of the New Testament canon. How did you get interested in those subjects, and why do you think they're important for Christians to think about in this present moment? Yeah, well, I mean, I have written about that in a variety of ways, both at a popular and scholarly level, and uh, happens to be my main area of research interest. And my story dates back all the way to my undergraduate years at UNC Chapel Hill. When I was a freshman, I actually had a New Testament introduction class with Bart Ehrman, who was a professor of mine. And that actually began my interest in text and canon issues uh, and the origins of the New Testament canon and just why we have the books that we have. And of course, it's essential for Christians to understand a little bit of that because 
you can't defend the extent of the canon that you don't only have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you don't have a theology. If you don't have a theology, you don't have anything to really hang your hat on on a doctrinal level. So it, yeah, it's the thread that if you keep pulling it, it could unravel the whole thing. And so that's why I've spent a good bit of time on it. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, you weren't necessarily convinced by your former professor, Bart Ehrman, in all <laughs> of his uh, his pontifications. <laughs> uh, no, but it was very disconcerting for any 18, 19 year old kid to be in a class like that. And yeah, and I was like everybody else kind of stuck. I didn't know what to do to respond to him. And so it took you know, a lot of research, a lot of reading and a lot of future work and certainly kind of led me to my own academic career as a result. Do you think that churches need to do more work preparing teens? Yeah, not only on the canon, but on all kinds of things that are going to be attacked. Right. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer in making sure that we do a better job preparing our, our future college students. In fact, too many grow up in Christian homes and then after a short time in college, come home thinking entirely differently than when they left. And in fact, I have a book called Surviving Religion 101, which is a book that helps Christians navigate the complexities of, of uh, university life as a believer. Right. And um, that's based on not only my own experience, but just, you know, working with these sorts of issues for a long, long time. Yeah, good. So before we get started here, I was wondering if you could give our listeners a quick definition of what is progressive Christianity. Yeah, well, progressive Christianity was a name I've given to what probably most people think of as liberal Christianity. So one might think mm -hmm. of Jay Gresham Machen's famous book, Christianity and Liberalism, which was written in 1923, which deals with a sort of rewriting of the Christian faith where all the classic doctrines are either reversed or eliminated. So if you think about core truths that we believe as Christians, we believe that Jesus is divine. Progressive Christianity would say, no, he's not. We would believe that sin is real and needs atonement. Progressive Christianity would say, well, no, it doesn't. Uh, historic Christianity would say, hey, you know, Jesus died on the cross for a reason. Progressive Christianity would say, well, I mean, he was just a martyr like anybody else. And so on and on it would go. And um, these sorts of ideas come up every generation. They came up in Machen's day and they're still around in our day. Um, and so I just gave mm -hmm. it a, a term that I think most people would resonate with now. Um, we probably don't use the term liberal Christianity in the way we used to, but it's effectively the same thing that Machen fought in his day, but just with new garb and, and new issues that are the, the main talking points. You just mentioned the idea that progressive Christians tend to see Jesus as a kind of wise and helpful teacher. But isn't that also one of the primary lenses through which many evangelical Christians see Jesus? Yeah. Though they don't explicitly deny his divinity, what they actually end up focusing on week after week are all the practical life lessons of Jesus. And so do you think that in some ways this sort of approach helps to prepare people for more liberal and progressive forms of the faith? Yeah, well, one of the points of writing my book is not just to battle people who fully embrace progressive Christianity, but particularly to help genuine Christians sort of realize they may have embraced certain tenets of progressive Christianity, not realize it. Yeah. Um, in other words, it seeped into the evangelical church, too, and it, it does it in more subtle ways, as you indicated. Yeah. Uh, in fact, what I did with each of these Ten Commandments is I make the point that each of the Ten Commandments of progressive Christianity is partly true. In other words, there's a nugget of truth in there wrapped around a rather sort of deceptive and, and borderline idea. And so it's the mixture of truth and untruth. So for example, we as Christians don't think our deeds are irrelevant. We don't think what we do doesn't matter. Of course it matters. Um, but we would never, as Bible-centered Christians, argue that that what we do is the core of what makes us a Christian. Right. Uh, what makes us a Christian is trusting in the, in the finished work of Christ, and then our deeds flow from that. So yeah, it's a matter of emphasis and a matter of focus. Yeah. What inspired you to write this little book outlining the Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity? Yeah, well, actually, I had a, a friend of mine who was witnessing to his unbelieving mom, who was not a Christian, and his mom had given him a list of 10 tenets that every Christian should believe that he passed along to me. And those 10 things were written by a, a person by the name of Richard Rohr. 
which the audience may recognize as sort of a, a progressive Christian thinker and theologian. Often interviewed on Oprah Winfrey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Richard Rohr actually got them from a book by a person by the name of Philip Gully. And Gully's book was entitled, If the Church Were Christian. And it has 10 chapters that Rohr borrows the titles of. And those 10 chapters are the Ten Commandments, what I call the Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. In other words, 10 things that every progressive Christian believes that I think really do embody modern versions of Christianity that I think are completely antithetical to what historic Christianity has always believed. So basically, you didn't come up with uh, each of the Ten Commandments that you are interacting with. You're just responding to these 10 principles set forth by progressive Christians like Richard Rohr and Philip Gully. Absolutely. And I make that clear in the introduction, which is these aren't my Ten Commandments. These are their Ten Commandments. Yeah. Now, they don't use the term commandments, yeah. but these are their Ten Principles, which they think all Christians should believe. So it's really important for the reader and the listener in this case to recognize that these aren't things we're putting on them. These are things they're owning themselves in terms of their own view. And I think that's really important to, to recognize. So in your introduction, you talk about, as you mentioned, J. Gresham Machen's classic book, Christianity and Liberalism. Why do you think Machen's book is relevant to this discussion? What Machen did in his book was tap into sort of what the human heart naturally gravitates to when it rejects biblical Christianity. And since the human heart effectively hasn't changed since the dawn of time mm -hmm. and with the fall, we would expect that the same have-truths just keep getting repeated over and over again. And so I acknowledge at the beginning of my book that the battle I'm fighting now in this book is not a new battle. It's just a rehash of the same battle that Machen fought. And of course, Machen would admit that this isn't a new thing in his day either, that these sorts of things preceded him by generations. And I think this highlights a really critical point in this whole discussion, which is that each generation of the church has to engage again and afresh in these battles all over again. And so we on our end have to recognize that we're just obligated to keep jumping into the fray because that never goes away. On the flip side, it's also important to recognize this because every new generation of progressive Christians thinks they're finding something new. And this right. is a rather interesting thing to observe. So especially for young folks at college age, 19, 20, 21, they'll act like they've discovered for the first time a new version of Christianity that no one has ever discovered before and say, hey, you know, what if we just thought about deeds, not creeds, and thought about Jesus is just a model for our living. What about that? As if no one's ever thought of that before. Right. And I, I just want to point out that this is old news, not new news. And it ought to be contrasted to the good news, which is the historic Christian faith. Yeah. One of my favorite lines from Machen, which you quote in the book, is that liberalism is altogether in the imperative mood, while Christianity begins with the triumphant indicative. What does he mean by that? Yeah. So it's rather ironic. So what progressives will tell you is they'll tell you that we're a kinder, gentler version of Christianity. We're not about law. We're about grace. We're not about hammering you with things to do. We're about just being kind, soft people. And you sort of buy that after a while. But then you realize when you start looking at the doctrines, it's actually reversed because it's actually the liberals or the progressives. All they have is moralism. Right. And if all they have is moralism, all they have is imperatives. It's do, 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 be, 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 change, change, change. Um, they want you to be different, do different, act different, but they give you no power to do it and no sort of mechanism for thinking you've ever reached your goal. And so, ironically, the very religious system that's supposed to set you free, progressive Christianity, is the very thing that puts you in shackles. Hmm. Um, it binds you with this law but no gospel scenario, whereas what Machen's saying is that the true version of Christianity doesn't start with do, it starts with done, effectively, saying that Jesus has finished his work on the cross, and it's the empowerment of, of that finished work and the spirit living in you that allows you to to actually obey God, but it's not the obeying of God that makes you a believer. It's Jesus's finished work that makes you a believer and embracing it by faith. So those are very different systems. And what I wanted the reader to see is that the one that's oppressive is not the one they think it is. The progressive system that ends up being pharisaical 
in the end, even though they label the historic view as pharisaical. It's rather ironic. Yeah. You write that while liberal Christians make much of Jesus' moral example, what is so oddly missing in their system is why anyone would care. After all, if Jesus is just an ordinary man, why would we think his particular moral code is any better than anyone else's? Yeah, this is a classic example of a system with holes, massive and enormous philosophical holes. You could drive a car through them, but yet there's never any acknowledgement that they exist. So everyone's thinking, you know, let's just follow Jesus as a moral example. He's a great moral teacher. And I'm like, but you've never given me a reason why I should care more about Jesus than any other great historical moral teacher. Or what makes Jesus's moral teachings good anyway? I mean, how do I know what counts as good or right? I have to have some ultimate standard for that. And so there's just sort of this very almost intellectually lazy approach. We're just going to grant Jesus this high moral status without ever explaining why. And I think it betrays that they're just still living off sort of the old capital of biblical Christianity, while at the same time trying to find a way to, to make it different and more progressive. And it just becomes inconsistent with itself. Yeah, it's sort of like the great wine of the Christian faith kind of turned to vinegar. Yeah, that's right. Barring the capital, of, as you said, of uh, previous Christian belief. So now the first commandment you came across is the idea that Jesus is a model for living more than an object of worship. What's wrong with that idea? Well, it always depends on what the word more than means or the phrase more than means. But effectively, what this first tenet is doing is denying the divinity of Jesus, or at least denying it in effect or in function. The historic Christian view is that Jesus is not simply a model for living, although certainly we do model ourselves after him. No doubt that's true, but that's not the ultimate thing that we think about with Jesus or the ultimate importance of Jesus. Rather, he is the Lord. He is the creator of the universe. He's the one who's worthy of our worship and our devotion and our trust. Uh, And this is the very thing missing, of course, in the progressive movement. They want to sort of deny the divinity of Jesus, but yet retain his model for living. I would argue you can only have both of them if they're together. You deny one, you deny the other. If Jesus is not God, then why would his moral example be any better than anyone else's? But this is the thing they're trying to strip away. And for those who understand liberal Christianity, this won't be a surprise. One of the classic things denied, almost one of the very first things denied in all liberal Christianity is the divinity of Jesus, which is why we're so keen to make sure we uphold it in orthodox circles. The second commandment of progressive Christianity is that affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. What's your critique of this assertion? Yeah, so this is just a veiled way of saying that the main point we should focus on as Christians or progressive Christians is not people's sin, but their potential. In other words, it's a complaint that you historic Christians always want to talk about sin all the time. Let's stop doing that. That just beats people down. Um, Instead, we need to talk about people's potential. People still talk about things positively. Now, I will say there's an element of truth in this, right? We're not suggesting when we say that people are sinners or that they're totally depraved, that they don't have amazing potential as human beings made in the image of God. Of course they do. But what Goalie seems to miss uh, is that that potential can only be reached if, in fact, that sin is dealt with, paid for, and someone is redeemed and changed from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's, of course, what he doesn't have. And so this, this is a second thing that Machen brings up in his original book, which is that if you're looking for progressive Christianity, the first thing they do is deny the divinity of Jesus. And the second thing they do is deny the seriousness of sin. And that's always going to happen. If you're in a church that downplays the seriousness of sin, won't call sin sin, then you're probably finding yourself in a progressive church. Yeah. And you say that behind that liberal lack of emphasis on sin, more importantly, is a rejection of the substitutionary atonement. How are those two things related? Well, think about it. Yeah, for a moment. I mean, if Jesus doesn't care much about sin and sin's not that big a deal, then you have to come up with a different explanation for his death. I mean, historically, we believed his death pays the penalty of sin. But if you don't think sin's a big deal or even needs a a payment, then suddenly you have to come up with a new idea for why Jesus died. 
And so this is fascinating to watch among progressives. They're kind of scrambling to find a reason for why Jesus died. Well, it can't be because he's paying for sin. It can't be because the wrath of God is being poured out on him in the place of sinners. It must be something else. And what they basically come up with is that Jesus's death on the cross is yet another layer of his moral example. It's an example of, of how much he loves you and how much he's willing to do for you and what happens to people when they stand for truth, they get persecuted or something like that. But it doesn't have anything to do with sin. And that's, that's the sad thing. It robs the cross of its core meaning. So basically, their view of the atonement becomes Pelagian. You know, it's a moral example, live like Jesus, follow his example, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we see the cross in Christianity as the crowning achievement of salvation. They see the cross as just another example of how Jesus led a genuine life and was willing to suffer for doing the right thing. And that, that sounds better on the surface, but it actually is pretty discouraging Yeah, because there's really no more ultimate purpose for what he did. And he died effectively in vain. Another commandment of progressive Christianity is that the work of reconciliation should be valued over making judgments. What's wrong with this idea? What I love about each of these titles is they're actually just veiled ways to say something you hear in popular culture. Yeah. And this is another example of it. The, the thing that's being veiled here is in the complaint that's really being offered here is you Christians need to stop judging people. Stop going around telling people they're wrong. And this is, of course, one of the things that progressive Christians always want to say is that Stop making judgments about people's behavior and just look for ways to bring people together. Stop being a, a divider and start being a uniter, okay? And so you, you hear this sort of rhetoric, and that's classic in this third commandment. And, of course, the problem, again, is that at first glance, you think to yourself, well, that sounds pretty good. I mean, I don't want to be a divider. I'd rather be a uniter. Maybe we should stop telling people they're wrong. Okay, it sounds good on the surface until you realize that even the claim that you should stop telling people they're wrong is actually a claim that someone's wrong, exactly. which is it's wrong to tell people they're wrong. And you right. realize that they're actually doing the very thing that you said you shouldn't do. And this is, again, that shows where the progressive system just implodes on itself. It's sawing off the branch you're sitting on, mm -hmm. and it just happens again and again throughout the book. So the critique just ends up being selectively applied. You know, you shouldn't be judgmental about their preferred moralities. Yeah, well, that's another inconsistency, right? They're, they're mad at Christians if Christians speak out against something like a sexual sin. Right. But they're quite willing to speak out about other kinds of things they would regard as wrong. Yeah. You know, environmental pollution, racism, mm -hmm. different types of things in, in the world. They would think, hey, we need to stop that behavior. And they're, they're very what you might even call judgmental about it. Right. And so you realize it's just selective. They, they want you to stop talking about certain sins. They just want to be free to talk about the ones they want to talk about. And again, you, you can't have this pick and choose a system about what sins are worth condemning and what aren't. How do you think we should interpret Jesus' words when he says, judge not, lest you too be judged? This is the one verse of the Bible apparently everybody knows, even if they've <laughs> never read it. That's right. Um, and quote it quickly. And of course, what Jesus is not saying in that context is that you can never tell someone they're wrong. Right. Um, that's certainly out of sorts with all kinds of other things biblically. What judging is defined as is, for one, using a standard for the person you're condemning that you don't use for yourself. Yeah. And so hypocrisy is core there. And that's one of the very things he condemned the Pharisees for. And then Paul makes it clear that judging your brother is defined as holding your brother to a standard that's not in God's word. In other words, teaching as commandments the doctrines of men. Exactly. Which, by the way, the Pharisees also were very good at. Right. So, yeah, that's what Jesus meant by judging. But he didn't mean by judging that you can never say someone's behavior is wrong. Because if, if that were the case, and Jesus himself is a judge right. and judgmental. Another commandment you address is that gracious behavior is more important than right belief. How do you end up pushing back on that claim? Yeah, so that claim in its sort of more blunt form is basically that the problem with the church today is they care too much about theology. 
theology isn't the solution. Theology is the problem. If you want to worry about good theology, then you're probably divisive, narrow, dogmatic. You're probably one of those mean people that just tries to split people. And so what Gully does here is he says, basically, the problem with the church is a misguided quest for theological purity. And you know what? Again, that sounds pretty good. You're like, wait a second. Maybe he's right. Maybe we should just stop arguing about theology and just live a good life. But what's interesting is, and this, this brings us back to the point I made a moment ago, what's lurking behind this assumption is that you, you actually have a more gracious religion when you just focus on doing the right thing rather than believing the right thing. And that grace comes from doing rather than understanding and believing. And of course, that's the opposite of what Christianity says. If you have a religion that's only about doing and having the right behavior, actually, the more judgmental pharisaical religion is going to be progressive Christianity because that's the only tool in their toolbox. Uh, whereas historic Christianity says, no, you start with right belief, right belief about God and the way he works and about sin and about redemption. And then your rest of your life flows from that. So there is a paradox here. You think that you get more grace by prioritizing uh, right behavior when actually you get less. You just get more law and it becomes the very thing they're trying to condemn. Yeah. Furthermore, this commits the same problem that we've talked about already, you know, sawing off the branch upon which you're sitting, because the idea that, you know, gracious behavior is more important than right belief is a belief that he's trying to get you to subscribe to. <laughs> yeah, it's a exactly. doctrine first that then yeah. is going to change our behavior. <laughs> yeah. Anybody who comes to you and says, I think any theology is bad, you realize it just gave you a theological statement. That's a doctrine. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, you just you realize how inconsistent it is. Yeah. And then furthermore, Paul writes to Timothy, you point out in the book, you know, First Timothy 4.16, watch your life and doctrine closely. So it's not that we should value life only as opposed to doctrine or only, you know, doctrine is important and not life. It's both are important and we need to watch both carefully. Yeah, I mean, I think another way to say it is people have this idea that Paul or Jesus, that their big complaint about the Pharisees is that the Pharisees care too much about theology. Mm -hmm. And that's never what Jesus says or what Paul says. The issue was not they cared too much about theology, but that they had bad theology. In other words, they should have cared more. They should have gotten it right. And the reality is the Pharisees embraced false doctrines, which is why they ended up with the problems they had. Again and again, what I see you saying in your book is that there is a, with progressive Christianity, there's an emphasis on the horizontal over the vertical. Explain that for our listeners. Yeah, I think I even address this perhaps towards the ends of the book. I can't remember, but yes. So you know, if you deny the divinity of Jesus, you deny a God who cares about sin, you deny all these things, what you're really left with at the end is just how you interact with other human beings. So everything is just horizontal. And that is, by the way, the definition of a human-centered religion. Right. Most people think that religion, and this is the sad part, is that the religion for most people isn't really about their relationship with God. It's actually about the way they relate to other people, which is why when most people are asked what religion is all about, it's about being a good person, Right. which translated means treating people well, which, by the way, Christians think you should treat people well. Uh, we do think behavior matters, but that's not the ultimate question. The ultimate issue of reconciliation for Bible-believing Christians is reconciling God and man first, not man and man. Now, reconciling man and man is important, but it flows only from the first. If yeah. You can't have good human reconciliation unless you first have divine human reconciliation. Yeah. So when people say uh, basically all religions teach the same thing, in some ways, they're right. If you define religion primarily in terms of what's my responsibility to my fellow man, according to progressive Christianity, yeah, that's basically what religion is. It's all about ethics. But historic Christianity has always emphasized what Christ came to do, the good news of his rescue. That's unlike all the other religions in the world, right? Yeah, which is why when people say Christianity is the same as every other religion, what they don't realize is that they're just using their own personal 
and incorrect definition of Christianity. Yeah, yeah. In other words, they've already assumed it's like every other religion and therefore claim it's like every other religion, which is circular if you think about it. If yeah. you look at Christianity at its own terms, you realize that it's actually radically different than any other religion. And most people just don't know that because they've never either understood what real Christianity teaches or maybe never read the Bible. But it's clear that, yes, Christians care about how you behave. Yes, God cares about how you behave, but that's not really the core of it. The core of it is a work of God to save sinners apart from their works. Yeah, like that message of the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53 is centered on this sacrificial lamb who will bear the sins of the world and make many to be accounted righteous. What other religion has that at its heart? Yeah, well, of course, our claim is none, right? Only only <laughs> biblical Christianity has anything that is remotely like that, and which is why every other religious system at the end of the day does end up being moralism. And moralism is never good news. Yeah, It's actually you know, always bad news for a sinner because the more you try to keep the law, the more you break the law. Yeah, especially if you follow the logic of the prophet I just mentioned, Isaiah. You know, here's a holy prophet of God. And yet when he stands in God's presence, he says, I am a man of unclean lips. I am undone. That's why we need something outside of me to save me. We need a rescuer. Yep, absolutely. All right, here's another one. Inviting questions is more valuable than supplying answers. Yeah, this is one of my favorite, actually. But I find this to be intriguing because I hear this very much today in most conversations. And basically, the complaint is something like this, that the problem with Bible-believing Christians is they're far too certain about everything they believe, that the sin of certainty is the problem, and that if you're too sure about what you think and about what you believe, well, by golly, then you should realize how arrogant that is, and that humility really effectively is uncertainty. So that's put in this phrase, you know, it's more important to ask the questions than to find the answers. And it's, it's very much a classical cultural line. You know, it's equivalent to the, the journey's more important than the, than the destination type, <laughs> yeah. type language. You know, it's very much an Oprah Winfrey style spirituality where no one ever actually gets anywhere or believes anything. But by golly, it's all good because we're on a journey together. We're just figuring it all out. Now, at first glance, and I point this out in, in that chapter, first glance, that sounds really humble. We're like, man, I guess Christians are just arrogant and cocky, and we think we have all the answers. And it's these folks who say that we shouldn't be saying we know what we know. This falls apart again on all kinds of levels. One obvious level it falls apart on is the fact that the progressive Christian is quite dogmatic about a great many things. Yeah. Um, right after he finishes telling you that you should be ashamed of your certainty, he's certain about a lot of things. Yes. Um, and if anyone's ever been in a conversation with a progressive or liberal Christian, it is by no means a exercise in uncertainty. In fact, on the contrary, they're absolutely convinced that biblical Christianity is wrong. They're actually convinced that several things we believe are wrong uh, and that things that, that evangelical Christians believe are, are offensive and reprehensible. How can that be if you're uncertain about everything you believe? Yeah. So you realize it's, again, inconsistent, as we've seen. That's part of the theme of the whole book is the internal incoherence of the progressive system just doesn't work. How about this one? Meeting actual needs is more important than maintaining institutions. Yeah. So here's where Gully transitions into the church. So, so far, he hasn't really addressed the church as an institution, and he starts dealing with that at this point in the book, and he has his, his set complaints about what bothers him about the church and how we can fix that. And in that particular commandment or that particular chapter, he's frustrated because he thinks most things the church does are just to preserve the church. The church is out to save the church, not to help people, not to deal with what people really uh, need or want. And so this is the point where we as Christians say, you know what, there's an element of truth in this. The church is not perfect. The church does have a lot of problems, and we don't want to shun those or, or shirk those, I should say, or deny those. We want to admit those and address those. But under the heading of the church is not perfect, 
Um, he wants to sort of do away with institutional Christianity altogether. So everything is purely individualistic. And for the listener, this is another sign of progressive Christianity. Classic sign of progressive Christianity is individualistic Christianity, where you are kind of on your own. Maybe you go to a church, but you're not really committed to that church. That church has no real authority over you. You just kind of do your thing and spirituality and what you believe is all individually determined. So it's not about institutions at all. And I think this, of course, is classic progressive thinking, but contrary to, of course, what the Bible says about the church being the bride of Christ. Yeah, it's anti-traditional, anti-authoritarian, just me and my spiritual journey, figuring out things for myself, which uh, sounds great, especially for the young person who doesn't want to have any authority over the self. Yeah, I mean, the idea that you would submit to any authority, of course, is reprehensible to anybody in the progressive movement. You just don't, that's yeah. not something you would do. Right. And so this is going to be, a, a, I think, a clear indicator on the dashboard that you're dealing with the progressive Christian if someone is, is that averse to the institutional church. So you write that what seems to be missing here is any sense of the vertical purpose for the church, you know, how humans relate to God. No mention is made of the church's call to worship and glorify Jesus. No mention is made of what God does through the sacraments. Mm -hmm. And when I read that part of your book, I was reminded of some lines from uh, Harry Blamires in his book, The Secularist Heresy. Half a century ago, he, he came to similar conclusions. He says, in the near future, the dominating controversy within Christendom will be between those who give full weight to the supernatural reality at the heart of the Christian dogma, practice, and thought, and those who try to convert Christianity into a naturalistic religion. This outrage is being committed daily in our midst wherever the supposed Christian message is presented without reference to baptism, grace, and regeneration, without reference to incarnation, atonement, and redemption, without reference to the church, sacraments, and the Holy Spirit. What do you think about his comments there? Seem relevant to our day? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and part of this is the jettisoning of not just church as an institution, but the internal structures of, of what you get from church, which is the preached word, the sacraments. Those things are there for a reason. What progressive spirituality does is tries to get to God by circumventing all the channels and means of grace that God has given. Um, and so you just go your own way, so to speak, which, of course, is classical American religion. But it seems to me, once again, that this isn't something that we find only in progressive Christian circles. That's right. In many, if not most churches today, the emphasis seems to be on practical life lessons, you know, to help improve one's marriage. It's all horizontal. Absolutely. You know, but what you and Blumeyers before you seem to be saying is that what's missing is that crucial vertical dimension that focuses our attention first and foremost on Jesus as our divine rescuer and the supernatural grace that comes down from above. Yeah, well, I think that points out what we were discussing earlier, which is that progressive Christianity is is not just in progressive churches. It's unfortunately made its way into evangelical churches, yeah. and people don't know how to identify those, those strains. And there's no perfect church, of course. We all have a lot of ways to grow. But in as much as we find out that the church we're in is purely horizontal, um, even if on paper it affirms orthodox doctrines— if at the end of the day, it's purely horizontal in terms of what, what it's focused on and talking about, then we, we need to think about whether that's a healthy church. Yeah. The last commandment I'd like you to address is the idea that life in this world is more important than the afterlife. You say, quote, it's hard to imagine a single statement that better captures the ethos of progressive Christianity than this one. Why? I, I was stunned at this idea that, well, you know, it's really not the afterlife that matters. It's, it's the here and now that matters. This is the essence of progressive Christianity, because if you're only dealing in horizontal terms, well, then there is no concern for eternity. Yeah. You're just concerned about the present. You're preoccupied with how you live now and act now and whether you have your best life now. And the stunning reality of it is that Jesus was exactly the opposite in terms of what he talks about. 
he basically says, well, look, do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear those who can kill the soul and destroy the body in hell forever. I mean, he's, he's like, don't just think that you can get your good life now and be okay. What matters is eternity. And so he actually flipped it on his head. So this is, I think, fundamentally the most non-Christian tenet of all of them. And maybe it's fitting then that it's the last of the ten. You quote Philip Gully as saying, I decided not to invest any effort in saving people's souls from a hell I didn't believe in. And you say that he repeatedly states in his book that there is, in fact, no such thing as hell. But as you point out, this sounds like another one of those examples in which he ends up smuggling in certainty through the back door. How is it <laughs> that he knows that there's no such thing as hell? Yeah, well, think about how risky that is. Mm. I mean, for someone who says you can't know much and you have to be uncertain about everything, he's banking everything on the non-existence of hell. I mean, wouldn't you think that if you're uncertain about it, you'd at least make it a 50-50 deal? Or maybe you would take the classic Pascal's wager and just become a Bible-believing Christian just on the outside chance you could be wrong. I mean, he doesn't do any of that, which means that he's, he's much more certain than he lets on. Um, and it does also tell you that if you're going to focus on this life and only on horizontal things and ignore eternity and ignore vertical things, you, you have to reject hell to get there. Yeah. I mean, you can see why if you believed in a real hell, well, you couldn't talk that way which of course Jesus believed in a real hell and the New Testament writers believed in a real hell. And so what you realize then is Goli just has his own private religion here. This is not Christianity in any identifiable sense. Do you think at the heart of progressive Christianity is sort of Marxist philosophy? You know, Marx famously said that religion is the opiate of the masses and the focus on the afterlife blinds us from the present conditions. But essentially what he ended up doing was replacing one faith for the next. The faith that he ended up putting forward was this life is all that matters. And people who've followed that materialistic philosophy ended up emphasizing this life rather than the next one. Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I've never really looked into sort of the Marxist implications on progressive Christianity, but it is certainly true that there is a similar focus on the here and now. And of course, that spans lots of philosophies, mm -hmm. right? It spans atheism, Marxism. Uh, it, it spans, I would argue, as we just saw, progressive Christianity and many other philosophies are, are on the here and now. And so this is an example of where someone claims to sort of ditch religion. They don't realize you're just swapping one religious system for another yeah. um, or one dogma for another. And so, you know, the, the Marxist ideal is you lose religion entirely. Whereas in this case, obviously, progressives at least think it's good to have a religion. It's just not the religion that we would call Christianity. But in jettisoning religion, as you say, you may think you're getting rid of theology, but in reality, you're just exchanging theology for a different version. <laughs> Absolutely. And maybe even more to the point, you're changing the true God for a God of your own making. Yeah. You're, you're swapping out the, the real God for yourself effectively as God, and you control your own universe. Folks, you've been hearing from Dr. Michael J. Kruger, who is the author of The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. For more information about this and other related resources, simply head to the show notes for this episode, which you can find at HumbleSkeptic.com. That's HumbleSkeptic.com. If you happen to be in or near St. Louis or Memphis, there are a couple of events coming up that you can also check out in the show notes, along with ways to help support this podcast. Thanks so much, and I'll look forward to being with you again next time as we explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Thank you.